Well, hello, and thanks for listening in to our weekly teaching podcast here at City Church. We are a church in the Knoxville area that seeks to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you're in Knoxville or ever visiting Knoxville, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people here in the city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com slash give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can drop us a line at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Well, again, good to see you guys today. If you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 14. Luke 14. Um, If you don't have a Bible, feel free to grab one of ours. There should be some under the seats on the end of each row. Uh, If you are using one of our Bibles, the page number will be up on the screen behind me. Um, It's exciting to be back up here with you guys. I had a couple weeks off from teaching, uh, which came at a really good time because my whole family, like two weeks ago, caught the plague of sickness or whatever it is that's going around right now uh, in our city. Um, And so I thought that would be really good timing. I would be off for the week or two that I was sick. And then I got round two of whatever it is. So uh, I went to the doctor this week, found out that I have bronchitis, which is always something you want to hear when you go to the doctor. So um, I'm a little bit under the weather today. Uh, Those of you that have small children know that uh, kind of the fun thing about having kids is that when your family gets sick, it usually like makes a second round. So like everybody gets sick and then everybody gets sick again. And so that's kind of where we're at uh, at the Bateman household right now. So we're going to, we're going to try to get through this this morning. If I start hacking up a lung or something, I'll just like tag team it and we'll get somebody else up here and we'll continue the sermon. Sound good? So that's what you, I'm setting your expectations low right now. That's what I'm doing. Um, But we'll be in Luke chapter 14 here in just a bit. Uh, If you are brand new, We are on the very last Sunday of a series called Church is a Family. And so what we've been doing is just talking about the ins and outs of how we relate to one another as followers of Jesus. If you would consider yourself a Christian and you're a part of this thing called the church, how are we called to live in relationship with one another exactly? And so we've been spending a lot of time just kind of looking at that from a number of different vantage points. But that's been the series as a whole. Today, what I want to do, if I can, is sort of make a pivot. Uh, Today, instead of mainly talking about how the church is a family, what I want to do today is actually talk about how that informs how we relate to our earthly families, if that makes sense. So thus far in the series, when I use the word family, I've mainly been referring to our church family. Today, it's going to be different. When I use the word family today, I'm largely actually referring to your earthly family or your household might be another good word for that. I want us to actually talk about how we relate to our earthly families and how that fits in to this whole framework. So real quickly, before we begin, I just want you to have in mind who that group is made up of for you personally. So just imagine with me, whoever it is, who is in your household? Who makes up your earthly family? So if you're married, uh, that would be you and your spouse. If you're married with kids, that would be you, your spouse, and your kids. If you're single parenting, that would be you and your kids. Uh, If you're in college, that might would still be your parents, your family back home. Although if you're in college and you're the type that only calls your family like maybe once every two years, that would not include your family back home. 
that make sense? So think about who makes up your family. Now, maybe you're thinking, I don't know, I kind of live by myself. I don't know that there really is a group like that for me. I don't feel like that really applies to me. We're going to get to that towards the end, but I would say a lot of us probably have a group of people, a small group of people that make up our household or our earthly family. I want you to have those people in your mind because those are the types of relationships that we're going to be talking about largely this morning. And with that in mind, to start off, I want us to look today at a few somewhat peculiar passages from the life of Jesus. I say that they're peculiar because they kind of run counter to what many people assume that Christianity is. When a lot of people think about the movement of Christianity as a whole, they tend to think of it as a family-friendly movement. That's a term that gets thrown around a lot when it comes to Christianity. Now, some of that is because of the way that Christianity has marketed itself over the years. Christian radio is often called family-friendly radio. Christian movies are called movies for the whole family. There's even a somewhat famous Christian organization called Focus on the Family. So this is the language that people often use to talk about what Christianity is. And there's part of that language that I think makes a ton of sense, to be honest. The good news of Jesus does indeed generate healthy, thriving families, and it has the ability to repair really broken families. Some of you may have even witnessed that in your own family. As members of a biological family surrender their individual lives to Jesus, it will in time make that family healthier as a result. It'll create healthier family structures in that family. But here's my rub with the language of family-friendly. When we use words like Christian and family-friendly as if they're synonyms with one another, I think we might be overly simplifying some things just a bit. And I think we might be missing some very important things about, how, about Jesus and some very important things about how he thinks we should relate to our families. For instance, we tend to talk a lot about what we might call the pro-family teachings of the Bible. Verses like, honor your father and mother, love your wife as Christ loved the church, bring up your kids in the way they should go. We talk a lot about these, what we might call pro-family teachings in the Bible. But some scholars have pointed out that there are perhaps just as many what we might call anti-family teachings in the Bible, especially when it comes to Jesus himself and some of the things that he says. Now, by that, I don't mean to say that Jesus is against families. That's not what I'm trying to say at all. I just mean that Jesus at times will de-emphasize the importance of our earthly families and emphasize other things over and above those families. We tend to think and say things like, family comes first, but Jesus in many places in Scripture is going to say something more like, family comes second, or even further down the list than that, maybe. So now that some of you think I'm certifiably crazy, let's look at the Bible. Luke 14, verses 25 and following. Read these with me. Sorry, not out loud. I know that would be weird for some of you. Read these silently along with me. I should have clarified that. Verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him. That's Jesus. Great crowds accompanied Jesus. And he turned and said to them, 
If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So Jesus says, if anyone comes to him and wants to follow him, wants to devote their life to the things that he is about, but that person will not, quote, hate his own family, that person cannot be Jesus' disciple. I don't know if this would have made the cut onto our family-friendly radio stations, right? I mean, this is weird. Can we just call it what it is? This is weird language from Jesus. In fact, this is kind of one of those moments where it really feels like Jesus could have used like a PR rep, right? Like this is the moment where Jesus' campaign manager steps in and goes, okay, Jesus has said a lot of things today. That's a lot of things to think about. You know, I think we could all use some rest. Let's just take a few hours. We'll get Jesus a nap and maybe some food and we'll, we'll join back up later. I think we've got plenty to think about for today. This is weird, jarring language from Jesus. It's very bizarre for us to hear Jesus say things like, you must, quote, hate your family to follow me. And I want you to see that the way Jesus presents things in this passage, he actually includes every type of familial relationship that we have. His language is, and I quote, father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. So apparently this covers everybody. Both what we would call our family of origin, the family that we come from, and what we would call our nuclear family or our household, the people that make up our family today. Jesus seems to be saying that we should hate those people. So what in the world does Jesus mean by this passage? Well, first off, let's be clear about what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not telling people to neglect, despise, or demonstrate contempt for their families. Let me say that again. Jesus is not telling people to neglect, despise, or demonstrate contempt for their families. I, I say that just in case some of you were already planning on not doing Thanksgiving with your family and you're like, I've got a Bible verse for it now, right? Right? So Jesus is not saying that we should disrespect or show contempt for our family. That, that would go against everything else that Jesus teaches in the scriptures about how we should treat others. So I don't think that's what he's saying here. Here's what he is saying, though. Jesus is using a rhetorical formula that a lot of rabbis around that time would have used, what we might call the love-hate formula. It was a way to teach competing ideas by way of contrast. So it would be sort of like me saying to you today something like, uh, when Tennessee played Alabama, they made us look like a JV high school team, okay? It would be sort of like me saying that. Now, when I say that, I'm not being literal, I'm not saying I literally think Tennessee might be a JV high school team in disguise. What I am saying, though, is that there, there is a significant talent gap between the two teams, right? I'm using contrast in order to drive home a point. I'm sort of using hyperbolic language in order to drive home my point. 
That's similar in some ways to how Jesus is using the words love and hate in this passage. So he's not saying you should literally hate your family. He's saying that your commitment to Jesus should at times make your commitment to your family look weak by comparison. Does that make sense, at least in theory? That's what Jesus is trying to get across in this passage, primarily. But when you think about it, this does mean that there is a significant difference in what Jesus thinks it means to love something or love someone and what we think that means. There's a difference in how Jesus thinks about the idea, the concept of love, and how we do. You and I tend to think that we can love a lot of things, right? So we can love Jesus and love our families and love our friends and love our hobbies and love our jobs. Some of us not so much on that last one, but we feel like we can love lots of different things, right? And we feel like our love for all those different things, those loves don't necessarily ever have to compete with one another, in any significant ways. They're not, they don't ever have to be in tension with one another in any sort of substantial ways because the way we think about love, all of those things are in different compartments of our lives, right? They're all in their neat, tidy compartments. That's how we think about love, but that's not really how Jesus thinks about the idea of love. In Jesus' language, in the language of the Bible, to love something is to show preference and priority for that thing or that person. Jesus thinks about love a lot like you and I would think about concepts like loyalty or allegiance. Jesus would say you can indeed love a lot of different things, but he would say only one thing can have your allegiance. Only one thing can have your primary loyalty in life. You can only love one thing most. And so in this passage, while Jesus is not telling people to neglect or show contempt for their families, he is telling them that they will eventually have to decide where their primary loyalty lies in their life. He's saying that as a follower of Jesus, there will come moments in life where you will have to decide whether your earthly family has your primary loyalty or whether Jesus and his kingdom have your primary loyalty. Now, that messes with us a little bit, doesn't it, in our society today? My guess is that most American Christians have never even considered that their love for their family could be in competition with their love for Jesus. My guess is that most people have not even considered that to be a possibility because I think most American Christians assume that those are one and the same, right? My love for God is my love for the family and vice versa. But Jesus seems to think that there are times where doing what is best for Jesus and his kingdom might not necessarily be the thing that is most ideal for your family. There might be times where following Jesus means, at the very least, disrupting or inconveniencing our earthly family's life. I think bare minimum, that's what Jesus is trying to get across in this passage. Now, that is not a license for running your family ragged trying to participate in the mission of God. I want you to hear me loud and clear on that. It doesn't mean, for instance, that you never have a family dinner together during the week because you have to be having people over to your house all the time to build relationships with them. 
And it doesn't mean that you use God as an excuse to not care for your family well. Not at all. It doesn't mean any of that. But here's the thing. I don't know that most American Christians err on that side of the spectrum. I think more of us err on the side of never doing anything that interferes with or inconveniences our family, even when it is for the good of Jesus and his kingdom. There's a popular saying in Christendom, some of you guys may have heard this, where people will say, uh, don't sacrifice your family on the altar of ministry. You may have heard that expression before. Don't sacrifice your family on the altar of ministry. And that's a very necessary thing to say. I think especially it is a necessary thing to say to people like me, guys who are in ministry and have a tendency to elevate ministry over and above their family. I think it's a really helpful thing to say. But perhaps some people and some Americans specifically also need to hear the opposite. Don't sacrifice ministry in the kingdom on the altar of family. Family, just like anything else in life, can become something that we put in the place of God, that we put at the place of primary importance in our life over and above all else. And the biblical language for that is idolatry. Anytime we take something that is not God and we put it in the supreme place of our life, that's considered idolatry. And Jesus says here, similarly, in no uncertain terms that there will be times where putting him first, where putting the kingdom of God first in our life might be at odds with putting our earthly family first. And in those moments, followers of Jesus are called to devote their first love, their primary loyalty to Jesus and his kingdom. Now, we're going to talk in just a bit about what type of scenarios this might be referring to, this might have in mind exactly. But for the moment, I want us to take a look at another very similar passage together. So turn back just a page or two to the left in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. I want to say up front that I realize how difficult of an idea this might be for some of us in the room. So what I want to do is try to unpack it from a few different vantage points in the scriptures, because this emphasis, how Jesus talks about family, is actually a bit of a theme in his teachings. So in this passage from Luke chapter 12, Jesus is discussing this very same idea, how we relate to our earthly families. He just uses slightly different language this time. So start reading with me in verse 51. This is Jesus speaking, and he says this, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? Okay, stop right there. Honest question in the room. How many of you read that question from Jesus and thought, yes, I did think that you came to bring peace on earth, right? Like some of you are brand new to church today and you're going like, wait, is this a trick question? I thought that was like one of the main ideas with Christianity is that Jesus came to bring peace on earth. It's like in a Christmas song or two, right? Jesus says, do you think that I came to give peace on earth? So it definitely seems like Jesus is trying to throw people off a little bit here, but we're going to circle back to what he actually means by that. For now, keep reading with me the second half of verse 51. No, I tell you, but rather division. Interesting. For from now on in one house, that is in one household or one family, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. 
Some of you are like, I haven't understood anything else so far, but I get the whole like division with your in-laws thing. I get that. I feel that part of the Bible, definitely. So with this passage, like always, you have to read it in context. You have to read this passage in context of the rest of the Bible. You have to read it together with other things that Scripture says. So Jesus did indeed come to bring peace on earth. And by that, he means at a global, cosmic, macro level. Jesus is restoring peace in the world as a whole by restoring the world to the way it was meant to be. Jesus is indeed bringing peace on earth in that regard. But Jesus is very honest about the fact that at a micro level, at a more individualized level or family level within individual families and households, that very well may mean not peace but division. For instance, if one member of a family decides to follow Jesus and another family member decides not to, those are two radically different approaches to life, right? Because at their core, those people are now members of two different kingdoms. One of them is living under the rule and the reign of Jesus, and the other one is living under an entirely different rule and reign. And that reality, that situation will likely create some conflict some tension, maybe even some division between those family members. And Jesus is saying here that that is to be expected when it comes to following Jesus. Now, the hope is that it doesn't have to create that, right? The hope is that everybody in your family decides to follow Jesus together, decides together to live under the rule and reign of Jesus, so that all of you are going after the same things together. And it doesn't have to create that type of, of division. But there are plenty of times where that will not be the case. There will be times where you are following Jesus and nobody else in your earthly family is following Jesus, and that's going to create some division. Or maybe more common for those of us living in the Bible Belt or who our families live in the Bible Belt, there will be times where you will be following Jesus and other people in your family only claim to follow Jesus, and that will create some division between you in regards to certain decisions that you make. For instance, a friend of mine once felt the Lord prompting him to move to a North African country as a missionary, one of those places that you're not allowed to talk about going because if people found out, it could go bad for you once you're there. He had spent years training for the move, learning the language, learning a trade profession for his time there, and as the time neared for him to leave, his family began pressuring him not to go, as some of us might would expect in that type of scenario. But here's what I want you to hear. Their plea was not just, hey, we're really nervous for you to go and would rather you not. They actually turned it into a moral issue. They said to my friend, they said, hey, it's actually wrong for you to go because Jesus would want you to do what is safest and this is not safe at all. So it's actually wrong for you to go. They considered having him committed to some sort of institution where they could check on his mental health because they thought he was crazy. So that's the type of situation where My friend wants to follow Jesus. He wants to follow Jesus in this regard of his life, and his family is not following Jesus, and so they turned it into a very divisive issue. And Jesus says, hey, stuff like like that is going to happen. Another example, I knew a guy who had been dating a girl for a little over a year. He went to go talk to her dad about asking her to marry him. 
Her dad was not a follower of Jesus, and so during the conversation, her dad actually insisted that they had not been dating one another long enough to know if they should get married or not, which sometimes happens. But what what his future father-in-law suggested next in no uncertain terms is that what they should do is that he and his girlfriend should move in together and sort of test the waters a little bit to see if they were compatible with one another instead of getting married before they made such a massive decision like getting married. Now, first of all, can you imagine a more awkward conversation to have with your future father-in-law? But what was happening there is that my friend really wanted to honor God with the way he thought about his sexuality and the way he was leading this relationship in that regard. And instead of, instead of being thanked for that, instead of the future father-in-law understanding that, what it did is we created tension and division and conflict between him and his future father-in-law. I know of women who are followers of Jesus but are married to men who aren't or at least aren't at any functional level. And these women have had to navigate the almost weekly conversation of why they are going to attend church that Sunday, even if their husband has no interest in going with them. Why they're going to attend church and take their kids with them, even if their husband has no interest in going. I've known men who want to be involved in the life of their church community. They want to spend time pouring into other followers of Jesus in their life, but their wives see every church function, every small group meeting, every opportunity to pour into others as a threat to time that their husband could be spending at home with their family. I could go on with examples, but I think these are the types of situations created when we take life in the kingdom of God seriously. It's obedience but it's going to lead to some conflict. It's going to lead to some division at times with those who don't understand what it looks like to follow Jesus. Submitting our lives to Jesus and his kingdom will meet conflict and confusion and misunderstanding with those who do not follow him, or at least with those who only loosely identify with Jesus. And Jesus wants to prepare us for that to happen. But all that said, There is another slightly brighter side to all of this that I don't want us to miss as we sort of go along. So, so far, we've only heard Jesus talk about these things in terms of a warning, right? He warns his disciples that following him may negatively affect their relationships with their families in some way. This passage that we're going to look at next, though, is not a warning. It's not so much a warning, but instead a promise. So let's take a look at this one, then we'll step back and talk about what all this means for us before we're done. This one we'll put on the screen just for time's sake. This is Mark chapter 10. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. Starting in 29, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now and this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. So Jesus here is showing us that his instructions to reprioritize how we think about our family relationships is not just a warning, it also includes a promise. 
The promise that for anything we lose or sacrifice or give up or reprioritize for the sake of the kingdom of God, we will receive back a truer, more lasting version of that, both in this age and the one to come. Never, ever forget that God's intention is not to take from you, it's to give to you. God's intention is to give to you. Now, sometimes, in order for us to receive what God has to give us, it looks like reorienting some stuff in our life. Sometimes it looks like reorganizing things in our life so we can understand what it is he's trying to give us. Sure, in some ways we lose, quote unquote, lose those familial relationships. They become less of a priority for us than they were before following Jesus, but we also gain a truer, more lasting family in the process. Jesus offers us an incredible inheritance, both in this life and the one to come, and that includes for us a newer, bigger, truer family. That's the promise that we're given from Jesus. So with all of that as our framework from the Bible about how we should understand our relationships with our earthly families, let's talk a little bit practically about what all of this might mean for us. Seeing family in this way, seeing family through this lens, what should it generate in us as followers of Jesus as a result? I've got a couple implications for us. First, if you do have a healthy family, leverage it. If you do have a healthy family, leverage that family. Think back with me for a second to whoever your household includes. Who, is, who makes up your earthly family? Your spouse, your spouse and kids, your roommates, your family of origin. Whoever it is that makes up your family, I want you to ask the question of that family, are those healthy relationships? Are those healthy relationships for a follower of Jesus? Now, by healthy, I don't mean perfect, okay? N no family is perfect, none. What I mean, though, is as a pattern, does that family aim to reflect the values of the kingdom of God? As a pattern, are the grace and compassion of Jesus present in that family? Is there a quickness in each person to own up to their faults and sins and quickly repent of those things? Is there a desire by the people in it to become more like Jesus day by day? Does the family you're a part of have a healthy culture about it? If it does, here's what I want to encourage you to do. See that family that you're a part of as a tool, as a resource, not as an end in itself. See it as something to be leveraged for the kingdom and not just something to maintain and protect for its own sake. Here's another way of saying what Jesus said in that first passage that we looked at earlier. Between God and your family, you will always use one to serve the other. You will always use one to serve the other. If your primary loyalty, if your primary commitment lies with your earthly family, then you will often just use God to benefit your family. And we have often done just that here in the South when it comes to Bible Belt Christianity. We often operate as if God is simply a means to an end. He simply becomes a way to improve and upgrade our earthly family. We put our kids in church so our kids will learn how to behave. 
We drop off our kids at church so the kids minister or the youth pastor can teach them how to follow Jesus for us. We drag an unwilling spouse to church so that the church can help improve our marriage. Now, make no mistake about it, we here at City Church want to help with all of those things, okay? We, we want to serve you in those ways, to be sure. We do want to help you disciple your kids. We do want to help strengthen the marriages in our church. We are all about those things. But here's the kicker. If your primary commitment is to your family and not to God himself, you will only follow Jesus insofar as he benefits your family and doesn't disrupt or reorient anything about it. On the other hand, if your primary commitment is to Jesus, you will look for ways to leverage everything in your life for the purpose of the kingdom of God, including your family. Which means that sometimes you will be okay with life being a little bit less ideal for your family if it means that the kingdom of God gets served and built up through your family. You'll be okay with a little bit less uninterrupted time with just your family if it means that your family gets to participate in the mission of God together. When it comes to our earthly family, followers of Jesus should aim to build doors into it instead of walls around it. Most Americans are good at building walls around their family. We place, we place the supreme value on family, and we try to insulate and protect and block out anything else that might interfere with that family. We build walls around our family to keep all the other things out. And, and there are times and seasons where that may be necessary for your family, okay? I'm not going to take that away from you. There may be times in your family's life where you need to be a little more protective of your time. You need to be a little more protective of the time that you get to spend with one another. But my point is, what if we also look to build doors into our family? What if we look for ways to leverage our family for the sake of those without families, what if we sought out ways to give other people glimpses of family, opportunities to experience life in that family instead of seeing every other relationship as a potential threat to our family's relationships? I would submit to you that this is a much more biblical way to think about the family that you're a part of, such that it goes all the way back to one of the very first families that we read about in the Bible. Back in the early pages of Genesis, God tells Abraham that he will bless Abraham's family, his household, but he says the reason that he's going to bless Abraham's family is so that what? So that they might be a blessing to the world. That's God's goal in blessing families, is so that they might be a blessing. The end goal was never just to bless Abraham's family. The end goal was to make Abraham's family a blessing. And that's true of our families too. He doesn't just want to bless our family. He wants our family to be a blessing. And furthermore, in a very real sense, this is what Jesus himself did for us. Jesus existed from eternity past in heaven with a family, right? It was him, the Father, and the Spirit, existed from eternity past in this familial, mutual relationship. But eventually Jesus left that relationship. He came to earth on a rescue mission to seek and save what was lost. He left the comforts of those relationships, at least in the way that they stood, so that more and more people could be invited into that relationship with the Father through Jesus. 
The whole purpose was that more people might be welcomed in, that more people might be welcomed in and rescued into God's family. Jesus knew that the purpose of family was to reach those outside of that family. And we're called to see it the exact same way, to have the same mindset that Jesus did. Now, what I absolutely love about our church here is that by and large, I think you guys embody this mindset towards your earthly family so very well. As one example, in our church, it has become a very normal thing for a family, a husband and wife, or a family with kids, to offer to let single folks move in with them for a season, short-term or long-term. Now, it's happened a variety of different ways. So generally, a family will just catch wind that a college student or a grad student or a single young professional uh, needs a place to live for some period of time. Maybe it's because that person is on a tight budget or they're trying to save money or because they fell on hard times or whatever it is. Maybe it's just because they don't want to live alone and struggle with temptation because of that. But for one reason or another, a family catches wind that a single person needs a place to live. And what has happened so very often, like on repeat in our family, is that in our church family, is that one of those families will say, hey, why don't, why don't you just live with us? We've got a spare bedroom. We're not using it. Why don't you come live with us for a little while? And usually, that's not just that family saying, hey, come take up space in our household, okay? That's one thing. To say, hey, come take up space in our home is one thing. Usually what happens in our church family is that those people will say, no, come, come do life with us. Like, we want to have family dinners once a week, and we want you to be a part of them. We want to work through the inevitable conflict and frustration that's going to come from us sharing space together. It's people saying, hey, come be a part of our family for however long that is. I think that's one example of what it looks like to build doors into your family and not walls around it. It's seeing your family as a tool, as a resource for the kingdom of God. So first, if you have a healthy family, leverage it for the kingdom of God. Second, last thing I'll leave you with this morning. If you don't have a healthy family, now you do. If you don't have a healthy family, now you do. If for one reason or another, if you don't feel like you have much of a family at all, we want you to know that we desire to be that family for you. So maybe you recently moved here to Knoxville. You're on your own. You don't really know hardly anybody in the city. Maybe any family that you have is miles and miles away. We want to be your family, if that's the case. Maybe you have a family, but there's so much hurt and damage and relational fallout in your family that it's not really a functional family to you at all. If that's the case for you, we want to be your family. Maybe you had a family, but it fell apart. Maybe something happened and it's, it's not a family anymore, or if it is, you're not really a part of it because of something that you did or something that somebody else did. If that is true of you, we want to be your family. Or maybe for you, you, you have a family, but it's just that all the other members of your family don't really follow Jesus, at least not at any functional level. And if that's you, we want to be your family. This entire teaching series that we've been going through for the past seven weeks or so has been about how we are called to be family to one another. So if you're in a place where you don't have an earthly family to speak of, we want you to know that we desire to be that for you and with you. 
Psalm 68, 6, one of my favorite verses in the Bible tells us this, God sets the lonely in families. God sets the lonely in families. Here at City Church, we firmly believe that that is what God did for us in Jesus, was that he rescued us into his family. And in response, we desire to do that for as many people as we possibly can. We want to be family. So, more than anything, if you're here today and you feel like you don't have any functional family to speak of, you just feel lonely as I'll get out, all I will say is we want you to know that that doesn't have to go a single another day. Come talk to us, sign up for a life group, whatever it is, just don't go another day thinking that you have to do life on your own. We desire to be family to you. Now, one disclaimer really quickly. When I say that we desire to be family to you, I don't mean that we desire to be a perfect family. Or we certainly desire to, but we're not going to be able to be a perfect family to you. I will be the first to tell you that we are far from perfect around here. I'm not saying that you have a picturesque family who will never fail you or let you down in any way. Listen, we're not capable of doing that. Jesus will never let you down, but I can almost assure you we will let you down at some point. So I'm not saying that we can fulfill every single spiritual and relational and emotional need that you have at all times. But what I am saying is that you have a group of people who desire to be family to you. A group of people who desire to embody who Jesus is to you in really tangible ways. People who desire to be what you feel like you don't have currently. That's part of what it means for the church to be a family. So as we close out this series, whether you need to be on the receiving end of family, you need us to be family to you, in other words, or whether you need to be on the giving end of family, you need to look for ways to leverage your family and your life for the kingdom. I pray that God does the work that needs to be done by his spirit. I pray that he generates in us a desire to be family and a desire to let others be that family to us. Let's pray together. Thanks for listening. As many of you guys know, we are in the process of renovating and moving into a historic church building located on the Tennessee River right in the heart of Knoxville. If you regularly benefit from this podcast, we would love to extend the invite to you to consider giving to those renovations. If you're interested in finding out more, head to citychurchknox.com slash building.